This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. 18-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse stood trial for his role last August in the shooting deaths of two men, Joseph Rosenbaum and Anthony Huber, and for injuring a third man named Gage Grosskreutz in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Rittenhouse had joined counter-protesters at a Black Lives Matter action against the police shooting of a black man named Jacob Blake, who was left paralyzed. As of this recording, jury deliberations have begun. Meanwhile, the suspected white killers of a black man named Ahmad Arbery in Georgia are on trial. Three men, Travis McMichael, his father Gregory McMichael, and a third man named William Roddy Bryan Jr. are facing murder charges for an incident that left Arbery dead and shocked the nation last April. The judge in the case has just rejected the defendant's request for a mistrial. My guest is Jody Armour, the Roy P. Crocker Professor of Law at the University of Southern California. He's the author of several books, including Negrophobia and Reasonable Racism, and a Soros Justice Senior Fellow of the Open Society Institute Center on Crime, Communities, and Culture, and he's the race and criminal justice correspondent for this program. Welcome back to the show, Jody. It's good to be with you, Sonali. The Rittenhouse trial has gotten a lot more attention than the trial of the suspected killers of Ahmad Arbery. So let's start there. Um, we saw some theatrics in the courtroom. We also saw what seemed to be obvious bias from the judge toward Rittenhouse, right? Yeah, you know, this is the, a lot of people were shocked at seeing the judge kind of so cavalierly um, seeming to favor one side rather than another and being very comfortable and folksy in the process um, and think that maybe this is idiosyncratic with respect to this particular judge. People need to sit in courthouses across America and see how many judges are like this judge. A lot of us who work in the, you know, in these vineyards day in and day out of criminal justice run across these kinds of uh, judges that kind of approach the courtroom as their personal fiefdom all the time. And they run unopposed. He hasn't even been opposed in an election over the last several times he's run. Uh, so these people get uh, in, they get in, entrenched and you're seeing, you know, kind of how the process really works up close when you look at this judge. Um, that said, Yes, you know, there's certainly, um, it's not going to be surprising to find judges kind of favorable to uh, some, sometimes these kinds of defendants, but it's kind of interesting, uh, Sonali, sometimes we want judges to be kind of friendly defendants, uh, 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 rather defendant friendly, right? A lot of times we say, well, you know, there's too much mass incarceration, we need more defendant friendly judges. And so if this judge was generally defend, defendant friendly, um, even when it's not uh, uh, someone like Kyle, Kyle Rittenhouse, but uh, for black defendants as well, this would not be objectionable. Uh, my question is, and I don't know, but I, I, you know, I have my, my suspicions. My question is, is he generally this kind of um, defense favorable and friendly across the board? If he is, I don't find it as objectionable. Hmm. One of the things that came up, uh, which is so critical, is the idea of a 17-year-old boy walking around with an assault rifle openly on the streets during a protest, and somehow that being completely okay, 
And I'm sure you, uh, as I did, wondered, would they have treated a black man in the same way had he been wandering around waving an assault rifle in public during a charged moment publicly? Yeah, I think your question gets right at the heart of this case, Sonali, and that is that we're not just talking about the law. You're going to hear a lot of legal commentators and pundits and talking heads, you know, talking about all the intricacies of self-defense law. I wrote my first book on this. My first law review article in the Stanford Law Review was on self-defense law and, you know, various ways the reasonable person tests can figure in that law. But it's not the intricacies of the law that drive a lot of these outcomes nearly as much as the social realities behind these cases. And like, as you pointed out, if we take, uh, going back further, uh, George Zimmerman and Trayvon Martin, that 17-year-old Trayvon Martin born and getting his Skittles and Arizona iced tea and is confronted by this adult George Zimmerman with a gun for no reason, he's completely innocent, Trayvon Martin, if you make him a 17-year-old Brad Pitt and, and uh, George Zimmerman, a 30-something-year-old Wesley Snipes, for example, you're going to have a different outcome in that case. You know, I don't care about the intricacies of self-defense law and stand-your-ground law, right? There'll be a lot of empathy for that 17-year-old Brad Pitt and a lack of empathy for that 30-something-year-old Wesley Snipes. By the same token, here in this case, it's not so much just a black letter law that's going to drive the outcome of this case as, as you point out, if you take a black person, you plunk them down in the role of Kyle Rittenhouse and have them go in and kind of provoke encounters with other people, you very likely are going to have a different outcome than you uh, would, you know, given a racial role reversal. Uh, it would be approached and thought about in a very different way. And so what's really going on here, um, uh, Sonali is uh, was given away by the in the closing arguments by Kyle Rittenhouse's defense attorney when he said and he had just a few short words but he got it all in there for the jury he said we don't play fast and loose with facts pretending Mr. Rosenbaum was citizen A number one guy he was a bad man he was there he was causing trouble he was a rioter and my client had to deal with him that night alone. So what he's really saying, and he's getting across to the jury, is that this isn't just a trial about, you know, my client and, and his self-defense claim. It's also about a bad man. You know, and they did that, they do that a lot with the Black Lives Matter movement when police would shoot unarmed people. They will try to put the unarmed people that they shot on trial and call them bad people in some way. Well, he's doing the same thing here. The, 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 the victim here, that you couldn't call a victim in during the trial, by the way. That's the person right. Who was killed here by um, the person who was killed here by Kyle Rittenhouse was a bad man. He was causing trouble. He was a rioter. See, as, 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 he was other. You almost you if, if uh, you know there was almost that kind of otherization that you hear when people throw out the N word, and so you feel less care and concern for that victim, and you feel more sympathy for you know, a Kyle Rittenhouse. And then, if I may, Sonali, I'll just go to the last part of his, his closing argument, Mr. Richards, where he says, ladies and gentlemen, other people in this community have shot somebody seven times and it's been found okay. He's talking about wow. Jacob Blake. He's talking about the police officer who shot Jacob Blake in the back seven times in front of his kids in the back seat. 
and he's, a, he's comparing, drawing an equivalence between Kyle Rittenhouse and that police officer. And he said if the police officer, was, what he did was found okay, then my client did it four times, he said, in three quarters of a second to protect his life, so he must be okay. So again, there is a lot of messaging going on here. It's, do, it's not even dog whistling all the time. It's even more, more blatant than that, that, you know, my client is part of that thin line. You know, he, he stood in the place of a police officer protecting us from these rioters. And so you should look at him through those lenses. He's not an officious intermeddler or somebody who's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. He's just looking out for us. And, you know, um, if Jacob Blake got shot seven times in the back and that was okay, how can you blame Kyle Rittenhouse? And of course, it was Jacob Blake's shooting that had prompted Black Lives Matter activists to come out that fatal, uh, fateful night. And it was interesting that Rittenhouse's victims were all white, but because they were, you know, associated with the Black Lives Matter movement, it sort of reminds me of the white victims of the civil rights movement, right? Those uh, white victims who joined forces with black Americans to fight for freedom for all people who were killed and were seen in the same vein by the racists of yesteryear, right? I think that's spot on. You know, they are viewed as black adjacent, mm. sufficiently black adjacent to, because they know, I have some um, data here um, uh, Sonali from the Urban Institute, they've done some uh, studies on race and justifiable hom homicide and stand your, stand your ground laws. And what they found is that if you are somebody white who shoots somebody black and claims justification, self-defense in a case like this, you are 10 times as likely to be acquitted, found not guilty by a jury, as if you are black and you shoot somebody white and claim justification. Now, not only that though, but if you are white and shoot somebody black, you are five times as likely to be found justifiable as if you're white and shoot somebody white. So you, 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 the odds aren't quite as stacked in your favor if you shoot somebody white, right? Um, if, you, if, you, if you shoot somebody black, as a white shooter, you have a very good chance of getting off just statistically. The numbers are in your favor, right? But if you can make the person you're shooting who happens to be white kind of black adjacent, then maybe you can get the benefit of that kind of statistic that says if you're white and shoot somebody black, you are five times as likely to get off as if you're white and shoot somebody white. So yeah, by, by you know, summoning that night and, and Jacob Blake and the fact that this was a riot in response to a police officer who shot Jacob Blake in the back five, seven times rather, and a statement that, you know, wasn't that, it wasn't that officer wasn't in the wrong and neither is my client. It's definitely tying all of that together in just that way, Sonali. Let's talk about Ahmad Arbery and the men who now stand accused of killing him. Ahmad Arbery was killed before George Floyd. And in many ways, if you look back on 2020, you can see momentum building up around the uprising that exploded in summer of 2020. And it built up, um, you know, with the Breonna Taylor killing, with 
Ahmad Arbery's killing. And even though Ahmad Arbery is, um, you, you know, was, was killed at the hands of suspected white vigilantes as opposed to police officers, because there's this equivalence between conservative white armed men and the police, in many ways it uh, occupies the same space in the national consciousness. This case has gotten much less attention. There's a different kind of a judge in this case. The uh, defendants um, tried to declare a mistrial. This judge rejected it. He may not be as biased one would hope. Um, but what do you think? Any thoughts on the Ahmad Arbery killer's um, trial, suspected killer's trial? Sure. It's all going to come down again to the jury's sympathies, empathies, and biases, as always in, in, in any uh, self-defense case, because self-defense cases turn on the reasonable person test, Sonali. You know, the reasonable person test is at the heart of self-defense jurisprudence, and it says essentially to a fact finder, if you find that the defendant made a reasonable mistake, that is, that his or her mistake was an expression of ordinary human frailty, then you're going to acquit. You're going to find that their mistake, even if they made a mistake, was reasonable because you can't blame them if they're just human, right? So the whole argument at the heart of self-defense claims once you shear away all of the legal trappings and mumbo jumbo is, and the model penal code says this explicitly, the reasonable person test is a vehicle for juries to show sympathy for a defendant or to, not, to, to withhold sympathy. And if they sympathize with the defendant, they're going to find what he or she did reasonable. And if they don't, then they're not going to find it reasonable. And the question is, why do jurors consistently find white defendants who shoot black people and, and claim self-defense more sympathetic than the black victims that they shoot. And that's just something that's going, has to go beyond the legal system. That goes to our basic social psychology as a country. It goes to what we mean by systemic racism, you know, beyond the structural level, at the level of our cognitive processes themselves and how they can be biased against uh, Black folk at the at the level of sympathies and empathies and care and concern. So yeah, we're we're seeing that in in the Aubrey case, and we'll we'll see if the result is actually very different than the statistics, which are that they, you have a ten you're ten times as likely to be found justified in shooting someone and claiming just and claiming self defense if you're white and shooting somebody black than if you're black and shooting someone white. In the case of the Rittenhouse trial, um, you know, there's this, the, the defendants are making the claim that he was in a situation where there were there was violence, the, you know, among the victims that he shot at were, you know, there were some that were armed, it was volatile. But in the case of the Arbery shooting in Georgia, here is a an unarmed black man who was minding his own business, going out for a run, was got curious about a construction site, not a construction site belonging to any of the men who are suspected of killing him. I don't see any way that they could justify essentially lynching him because that's what it, if, if you believe the timeline of what media say happened it sounds like three men ganged up on a young on a black man and lynched him yeah well what what complicates this uh um Sonali is one feature that is in the law so this is a this is a, an area in which the, the actual black letter law itself can matter some and what these defendants can claim and undoubtedly you know, um, will try to, to say is 
that even if you conclude that they um, were not privileged to justify in profiling um, Ahmaud Aubrey um, or in pulling him over or in accosting him, let's say you, you conclude that, that what, they were not justified in doing that, even though they claim they were, let's say you, they, you, you decide they weren't, then you still have them, you have a situation in which you have people who are confronting a man with a gun pointed at him. Now we're back to Kyle Rittenhouse. Now you are kind of an initial aggressor who has provoked the situation, both in the case of Ahmaud Arbery's, um, the men who surrounded him, and with Kyle Rittenhouse, arguably. But if now, having provoked this situation, you, the person who you have the gun pointed at lurches towards you or tries to get rid of the gun, which would be a normal human response. What the hell are you doing? You know, you're pointing this gun at me. Now you can say, hey, he lurched at me. He tried to grab my gun and I had to shoot him to protect myself. So the gun that you brought can turn into the justification you use to shoot somebody who tries to get rid of this lethal weapon that you have pointed at him. And if a, and they, they can, if a jury buys that, which a jury could, you know, well, maybe, you know, everything was, uh, wasn't, wasn't bad up until the moment he lurched, but then when he lurched for you, you could, you know, shoot back in self-defense. Then you're in a never win situation, aren't you, Sonali? You know, if I go out for a jog and I have a gun pointed at me, I guess my, you know, my only hope of survival is that is to lie down in supine acquiescence and hope they don't shoot me while I'm lying down. Jody, we uh, have seen in case after case, in spite of the summer 2020 uprising, police be acquitted for the killings of black people, men and women. Um, and because, you know, in, this, in these two cases, you have uh, two sets of white shooters who are not police, but seen as equivalent to police, um, one sort of wonders, you know, you can't say qualified immunity as um, police can claim uh, is there to protect them. So it's just good old fashioned white supremacy then, right? Oh, yeah. Well, it is something that is baked into our judicial system, and that is that we have jurors that have to sit and make that and make judgment. They're the fact finders. And whatever biases jurors have with them, in them, they're going to bring those biases into that jury box, and they're going to decide that case on the basis of those biases. Those biases are going to be kind of wedded to the rules, and the rules, like the reasonable person test, is an infinitely malleable legal directive that allows them to a lots of discretion to vent their biases. And so, you know, all, we, we cannot expect the court system, the criminal justice system, to be immune to the biases that run throughout the rest of society. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we get results from the criminal justice system that reflect the biases of the rest of society. So at this point, um, finally, when we look forward to, or, you know, I suppose we, I should say, when we look back on the uprisings of 2020, how do you think history is going to judge them? We, you know, both of these incidents um, over which we're seeing these trials play out now, both of the actual incidents took place last year in 2020 in that incredible moment in the American political landscape when 
millions of Americans, it's, uh, it's estimated, took to the streets over months in the middle of a pandemic to say that Black Lives Matter, even though you know, the Fox News propaganda machine did its job and some of that support for Black Lives Matter waned over, over several months, that was a history-making moment in 2020. But isn't the true test whether trials like the one we're discussing actually yield justice? Well, I think we could Think about it that way, Sonali. I would argue, though, that justice isn't going to be found in individual trials and individual courtrooms, not the kind of justice we are really looking for and crying out for, right? That the kind of justice that is going to prevent cases like this from coming up in the first place so that we don't have to go into the courtroom is the kind of justice that's going to, for example, stop police from pulling over black motorists because so many of these cases come out of police pulling over blacks as part of profile stops on the road, right? They've been privileged to do that because the Supreme Court has said you can make uh, these, you can really make pretextual stops that give uh, expression, allow you to express your, your biases um, and that's perfectly okay. So in, instead of taking police out of that kind of law enforcement activity. They should not be in traffic control. They should not be addressing houselessness. Police should be unbundled and taken out of so many interactions that they have with the members of the black community that we shouldn't wind up in the courtroom in the first place. And so that is the kind of justice I think that at least folks were arguing for going back to what you were talking about in the streets in 2020 here in LA, six weeks in a row, every day, day in and day out, you had the streets compact uh, with people saying, you know, we want not, not only more justice in the criminal justice system, but we want systemic racism addressed. Yes, there's been a, a blowback. Of course, there would be to such a generational upheaval that was so successful. We had it, it, it cashed out in a lot of ways locally. We got a new DA in LA, for example, George Gascon, Alistair Jackie Lacey, Measure J, 10, you know, a 10% of the unrestricted county budget. That's up to a billion dollars a year to non-incarceration alternatives. There are lots of local victories all over the country that came out of that movement. Yes, they're going to be setbacks, but th those movements are where we should look for the justice, not in individual courtroom cases, because the individual courtroom cases are just going to be reflections of the biases already mm -hmm. entrenched in society. Thank you so much for that wonderfully nuanced answer, Jody. Always a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Nala. My guest has been Jody Armour, the Roy P. Crocker Professor of Law at the University of Southern California and a Soros Justice Senior Fellow of the Open Society Institute Center on Crime, Communities and Culture and the Race and Criminal Justice Correspondent for Rising Up with Sonali. We've been discussing the trials of Kenosha shooter Kyle Rittenhouse and of the suspects in the Georgia murder of Ahmad Arbery. I'm Sonali Kohatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, risingupwithsonali.com, by becoming a subscriber. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RU with Sonali.